Uh, my name is Kenan Vaughn. I've got the privilege of being one of the pastors and elders here at Harvest and the delight of opening God's word with you this morning. If you want to head to Ecclesiastes 7, we're going to pick up on the series we're in on Ecclesiastes, the search for meaning. And so we'll be there in just a moment. I do want to highlight one announcement uh, before we get there is uh, just on what Greg was saying on Dia del Nino. It doesn't matter how many times you practice, you never sound like Greg. I've learned that uh, my time with him. I um, wish I did, but I don't. Uh, listen, this is a great opportunity, yes, to support it, uh, buy a t-shirt, uh, help uh, bless the kids, but I wanna encourage us to go further. I, I, I don't know what your plans are on uh, May 5th, but if you have some uh, availability or time, I, I, whatever season you're in life, obviously it's four families. If you have young children, it's just uh, bullseye, but no matter what season you're in, to come out and be a part of that, I think it's really important expression of the church of Jesus Christ in today's uh, cultural and political climate that we're going to have Latino, African American, and Caucasian families coming together uh, under the blood of Jesus Christ, displaying that the power of the gospel breaks down all the walls that otherwise separate us. Uh, I know for my family, I really want to be a part of that. I want my kids to see that. Now, sometimes we go, how do we, you know, how do we have relationships cross-culturally, and how do we do things with folks we don't know? How do we kind of break some of these barriers? And this is just a low-hanging fruit opportunity that Greg's team has put together that we can all jump in and experience. So I would encourage you, um, uh, don't, don't just buy the t-shirt. If you can come and spend some time, I think it will be a real blessing to all of us who are there, really a gift we can give our children uh, to let them experience that, uh, that multicultural uh, day of festivity that is a celebration not just of children, but, uh, but the Lord's grace. So please um, come if you can. Let's, as a body, really be a part of that. Well, uh, Ecclesiastes 7, we're going to be this morning. If you uh, would, wouldn't mind standing to your feet for me to read the text, uh, this is where we are in our series. Great passage this morning as Solomon begins to speak with the language of the Proverbs. So let's listen. Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 6 reads this way. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also is vanity. It's the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, for the next few moments as we um, just uh, open your word and unpack your word, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would speak. I pray that your word would go forth and would not return void, that you would do the necessary spiritual heart surgery in our lives that each of us need, that we may grow into the likeness of your son, Jesus. Uh, Lord, it is he that must increase as your word goes forth, and I must necessarily decrease. So I pray that might happen. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, for six chapters, Solomon has been really helping us to know that uh, many of those things which we are distracted into giving our lives in pursuit of, things of the world, uh, money and sex and power and pleasure, and for six chapters, he's been taking the position of, hey, I've had everything you're after, and I just want to tell you that it's not where life is. And it's uh, been extremely convicting. You're, you're, you're learning it from a guy who's been there, done that in almost every road we would go down, and he's saying, if you're looking for life under the sun meaning merely under the sun. If you're trying to find um, that which ultimately satisfies and fulfills, that which gives you meaning, apart from God, that's what under the sun is idiomatic of, apart from God, then you won't find it. 
Uh, you're never going to find it. And now what he does is kind of pause here. And in chapter 7, this chapter looks a lot like, if you open your Bible to Proverbs, you read virtually any of those chapters, they look like this. There's these couplets of wisdom. So Solomon takes a moment. He's been telling us where life is not. Now he's going to tell us how you find life. And he's going to do it through these uh, couplets of, of wisdom. And so what I want you to uh, envision here is, uh, I don't know how many of you had a, uh, a grandparent growing up that you were particularly close to. Uh, what I love is a, a grandparent. I got to do a lot of things with my grandfathers. And, and let me digress for a moment. And just, just uh, I talk about my grandparents a lot in here. I had two granddaddies, great-grandmoms and grandfathers, but two granddaddies I was particularly close to. I was really blessed to have a good chunk of life with both of them before they passed. Uh, one, uh, my father's dad we called Pop. That was his nickname. He was the rancher. And one, uh, my mother's father, we called Mickey. So Pop and Mickey were my two granddads. And, um, and, and I loved so much going to either of their homes and spending time with them. When I was at the ranch, um, my, my grandfather, Pop, he taught me how to fish. We poured seven dust all over the ground so we didn't get eaten up by the Texas fire ants. And, and I caught my first fish um, there with him using like a bamboo stick and a string and a little worm that we put on there. And and um, he taught me how to um, shoot a gun. He taught me how to build targets and shoot guns, taught me how to hunt. Um, a grandfather loved to play games with me. We would play dominoes. That was kind of the game of choice for, for a Texas rancher. And so we'd play regular dominoes, Mexican train. Greg would love that. It's a little shout out for the Cinco de Mayo. And, uh, and we would play uh, shoot the moon when we had uh, three of us. And so we would play dominoes. And, and after lunch every day, Pop would take what he called his four-hour nap. I don't know why he called it that because it was about 40 minutes. But uh, just he called it the four-hour nap. And what I did, I was way too antsy, too young, too excited to sleep. So I would read. And I remember just, I would read three or four books in my time there over the summer. I really gained a uh, delight in reading, spending that time. And, and then we would work hard. We were up before the sun came up. We were out. Uh, he had tw raised 25,000 chickens at a time uh, for Tyson. And uh, we would go out before the sun came up. And we would be uh, feeding chickens, picking up the deceased among them. And then uh, once the sun came up, we would go out and we'd feed those chickens to the coyotes, the, uh, the ones that had passed. And so uh, then we'd go and we'd work with the cattle all morning. We were building fence all afternoon. And one of my favorite moments of the day was when we would break mid-afternoon and we would come to the back porch and we would sit down, we'd always take a little break, mid-afternoon, right in the heat of the day, and we'd have a glass of my grandmother's sweet tea. And we'd sit out on these rockers and just survey the land in the midst of our work, hands blistered, sweating, extremely exhausted. And, and for a, a few moments, it was just silence. We'd kind of catch in our breath. Then my grandfather and I would always have just incredibly sweet conversations, conversations that I can recount to this day, conversations where the words were few, but the meaning was heavy, conversations where he downloaded to me a gift that really he was in a unique position to give as my grandfather. He gave me wisdom. Uh, my other grandfather, Mickey, who was legitimately one of the finest and, um, and really godliest and wisest men I ever knew, um, I would go to his house. He, we also loved games. Uh, games of choice at Mickey's house were Husker Du. Anybody remember that one? Um, okay. Well, good, ga good game in the 80s. And um, in Battleship, we'd play Battleship, and, uh, and we'd play chess. I don't think I ever beat my grandfather in chess all of my life. He was brilliant. And, um, and then we would, uh, one of our favorite things to do was to go and play golf. Um, he had his kind of home course in town, and he would take me sometimes on times. I was a terrible golfer, still I'm pretty bad, but he was a great golfer. So he'd take me out, we'd play golf. Occasionally my dad would join us. My dad was really bad, but he'd occasionally join us. And, um, and uh, on this one particular day, uh, we were on hole 13 of the home course, and it was 167-yard par 3. I was probably about 12 years old, and uh, I couldn't hit my irons that far. There was a big trap in front, sand trap, but uh, my driver went too far, and so I was kind of stuck. And, and Mickey said, hey, why don't you just tee your driver up really high, and maybe you'll kind of get under it, and, you know, it's probably the best you can do. Teed it up, hit it, went straight up in the air just like he had designed, two bounces right in the hole. 
hole in one. Now my only problem to this day is the two men that were eyewitnesses are both deceased. <laughs> but I wanna tell you, it happens. And um, it doesn't have anything to do with Ecclesiastes 7, but I don't get the chance to share that story very often. But loved to play golf, and, and my favorite thing to do with Mickey was to spend the night, and in the mornings, he would get up and cook me eggs and bacon. And for himself, he always ate a half a grapefruit and a bowl of grape nuts. And we would finish our meal, and we would linger at the breakfast table. And he would give me the gift that he was in a unique position to give. We would conversate about all things about life, and he would download into me wisdom. And so I have this just, what I cherish most about Pop and Mickey, I cherish not just the memories, not the unique things they taught me to do, I cherish the wisdom they gave me, wisdom for, from the aged for the ages. And um, take that with me to this day. Solomon, for some of you may not have had that, but I want to tell you, uh, God's given you a gift in his word, he's going to give it to us through a man who's got his granddaddy hat on this morning. He is saying, pull up a chair, uh, what, a, what a granddad can give you is because he has seen what you haven't seen. He has what you don't have. He's been where you haven't gone. He's done what you haven't done. Solomon is all of those things. So granddaddy Solomon has something to say, and we pull up a chair, and he speaks to us. Proverbial wisdom. And the first thing he says, verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. A good name is better than precious ointment. What's in a good name? A, a, a name is a reflection of your character. A name is, what is a reflection of your character. My uh, grandfather, Mickey, told me I was running for honor council in high school. I had to give a speech, and um, in that speech, he gave me a quote. Don't know who first said it, but I've remembered it to this day. He said, son, reputation is what folks think you are. Personality is who you seem to be. Character is who you really are. Uh, John Wooden, the great UCLA basketball coach of the 70s, won so many national titles, he said, uh, the true test of a man's character is who he is when no one is looking. So once you understand what Solomon's talking about, a good name means the truth of who you really are. Like the reflection of what's really true of your insides, of, of what's true about uh, your heart is, is grabbed a hold of in your character. It's what defines you. It's what convictionally holds you. And it's what people know to be true of you. And he says that's way better than precious ointment. That's way more important than precious ointment. And, and so... Uh, Understand ointment in the context of Solomon's day is, um, is emblematic of the external. The ointment was, uh, you know, it was the perfume. It was that which made just smell good, more attractive, more presentable. In Jesus' day, remember he got on to Simon in Luke 5 who didn't give him any ointment. It was inhospitable not to give somebody who had been traveling along dusty roads or working in dirty fields, not to give them a dab of ointment for their forehead, which just kind of covered the stench. So you didn't have to be worried about your B.O. when you ate in somebody's house. They didn't have all the antiperspirant deodorants that we have, they didn't shower as much as we do. Um, and so they had ointment. And the ointment was good. It was a good thing. Solomon says, hey, what's a good thing in the external is far outweighed by what is vastly more important, which is your name, which reflects your character, what's true of who you really are on the inside. Now you may be going, hey, listen, I've heard that all my life. I know that's true. Of course what's on the inside is more important than what's on the outside. But I want to say that uh, is that really what your life reflects to be true? We're in a culture that is obsessed with what's on the outside. We are obsessed with the external. We're a culture who, um, uh, who 
absolutely freaks out about uh, uh, the latest and greatest diet. I mean, I can't even keep up with the paleo to the Whole30 to the uh, grass-fed, you know, free-range, organic. You know, every, every diet that comes out, I usually find out because three or four of our staff members are on it. And about the time I can learn what it is, it's, we're moved on to the next one. And if the diet is too long-suffering for you, then there's all kind of new surgeries you can get where they'll just, you know, just do something medically that allows you to manage your image more easily. There's gyms on every corner exploding with memberships promising uh, that you can look better. And, and of course, the promise is you're going to feel better. But what we understand is underlying health is image. That, we, yeah, we want to feel good. We also want to look good. And so we got uh, tanning beds all over the place. We have, um, we have uh, makeup, the makeup industry. I've noticed there's just like a new line of makeup from virtually every celebrity I've ever heard of. So whoever you think looks good, you can look like them. And so we have a, a culture that's obsessed We've taken something that's, that's, that's good, it's uh, important, let's be presentable, um, uh, you know, don't, don't smell so bad that people can't fellowship with you. We've taken that and we've made it an idol. We've centered our lives around it and we've worshiped it. And Solomon's just saying, hey, be careful, that which is uh, in the human nature to long for and to worship is so far less important than your name. And here's my question, what are you doing to build your name? And, and let me say it this way, what are you doing to build your character? The name's just a reflection of your character. What practices in your life? Like we practice being presentable. We practice being fashionable. We practice being uh, attractive and ma- at least managing our attractiveness the best we can. Like we do things. What are you doing to build spiritual character in your life? If you're in agreement with Solomon, yeah, what's on the inside is more important. Uh, who are you right now becoming? One of my favorite resources for young men is J.C. Ryle's Thoughts for Young Men. I've been through that with most every group of guys I've ever uh, been in a discipling relationship with. And one thing J.C. Ryle says is, um, you are right now becoming the person you're going to be. True for men, true for women. You're become, like whatever patterns you've established to work on you, they're going to determine and dictate who you're going to be. Are most of the things you're working on, is it diet, is it exercise, is it managing image? Is, does that far outweigh what's going into your character? What are you doing to build spiritual character? Now, I'm not going to give you any ideas right now because I think that's the rest of our text this morning. But let me just ask the question first and foremost, are you doing it? Are you, are you actively going after being a person of character so that when people hear your name, they think of what's true of you and it's something that is good and godly and weighty. It's not merely external. It's not merely here today and gone tomorrow. It's not merely precious ointment. You know, our name at the end of the day is all we've got. One day, if, if I'm at your funeral, if you're at mine, I sure hope all, that all they're talking about is not how good we smelled. This guy really had something. And uh, man, I, I hope they're talking about our name because I hope our name represents something that was true of us that was worth remembering. At the end of the day, it's the caricature of our existence. It's what has defined us. And if you're a Christian, it's, uh, it's even more important because by the very idea of you taking the name Christian means you have taken the name of Christ and applied it to yourself. Your, your name is now his name. His name is yours. And so now what's meant by that is people are going to not just, they don't just, when they hear Ken and Vaughn, they don't just think of who I am. They're actually meant to think of who he is. The Bible doesn't diminish that. It actually declares that. In no uncertain terms, 2 Corinthians 5 says, we are Christ's ambassadors. Like when the world looks at us, they're meant to understand who he is. We represent him to a lost world. Not just your name, it's his name that's at stake with your character. Uh, Ephesians 2.10 says we are God's workmanship. The word for workmanship is poema. That's poem in English. 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. What does that mean? That, that, that the world looks at us and they read us as poems of God. I don't know if you remember Brit Lit from high school English, but when you read those poems that you uh, had trouble understanding, you read to get to the bottom of the heart and the intent and the character of the author. People are meant to read us to know who God is. And Solomon says, let me tell you something, it's far more important about your name than it is about the external appearance. Because people are going to read you to know who God is. And at the end of the day, the name Vaughn, it's sacred to me. It's one of those things I want to press into my boys. I want the name Vaughn to be, I want them to protect that name. I want them to hold that name uh, in, the high, in, in a high esteem. But I want that name, even to them, it certainly does to me, to pale in comparison to the name of Jesus Christ. That we must recognize anytime someone associates my name with humility, with nobility, uh, with zeal for the Lord, with godly character, it makes much of the name of Jesus. But when they associate my name with shadiness, shallowness, seediness, selfishness, it diminishes the glory and righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ. Because I've taken his name is my name. Listen, I want you guys to eat healthy. I think you ought to have some regimen of exercise in your life. Probably don't need to worry about pursuing a six pack in your middle ages, but you need to do something. But I, what I would tell you this, far more than that is your name. Because your name reflects your character and the character of Christ. You see what he's saying? Hey, don't mix this up. In a culture that worships the external, you be focused on the internal. What are you doing to build character? And then he says, not only is a good name better than precious ointment, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, this part can be confusing. You're probably going, wait, what? Now, he's being facetious, right? He's not being serious like a, uh, the day of death's not really better than the day of birth. I mean, that's when it's over, right? No, he's being, coming right through the front door. He's giving you wisdom. And you say, now, how is that true? I don't understand that. Well, let me, let me try to explain it this way. By God's grace, my wife and I have had four babies. She's done most of the having, but I've been there. And, uh, and, and by God's grace, we're about to have a fifth. And, um, and we're about six weeks out from, uh, from the big day, from the delivery, from the day of birth. And now let me tell you what we've done in those uh, for the first uh, four children, what we've done for all five of our children. While they're in the womb, uh, while the Lord is knitting them together in their mother's womb, we pray for them. We will regularly hold hands or I'll place my hand on her stomach and, and I'll just pray for the baby. Uh, we both pray every single day for the baby that is to come, even before the day of birth gets here. We're praying. I'm pr I, I pray every day that this child, that we don't even, we haven't met him face to face, the Lord knows him, I'm praying that one day he would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, like his own, not just daddy's a preacher and so yes, I'm a Christian, like I want him to know Christ and the power of sharing in his suffering. I want him to know Jesus, so I pray for that. And I pray that he have friends that would help nurture his heart and point him towards the Lord. I pray that he'd receive wisdom from his grandparents the same way I have. I pray for this child to find a woman like his mama. I pray to find a good and godly woman and be a loving husband and a loving father. I pray that he's raised his kids. I literally look down the hallways of time and I pray for him as a grandparent. Long after I'm gone, I pray that he would be a granddad like my granddad that would impart wisdom two generations down that would continue to multiply long after he's gone. So at the end of the day, I'm praying all the way for his legacy. I'm praying that when his days are done, he'd have a name that exalts Christ. I pray that when people think of this son who's not yet even been birthed, that when he gets to the end, they would think of him as one who loved the Lord ferociously, who did not love his life so much as to shrink away from death. So I'm praying for him, and then the day he's born, I will hold him 
like I've held the other four. And I will look into those eyes and I will weep and I will beg God for realized potential of what we've been praying. The day of birth is the day of potential. It's all there. Now he's in a sin-stained world. There's going to be heartache. There's going to be struggle. There's going to be disappointment. One day there's going to be death. And he's got to navigate this turbulency of life, clinging to the Lord. And I'm praying, God, let it be so. Draw him to yourself. Let him know what it is to be yours. I'm praying for everything we've prayed to come to fruition. And it's all potential at birth. Death is the day of fulfillment. Death is the day where we find out what kind of life we live. We get to meet our creator. We get to determine whether we hear the words, well done, whether we live like wise men and women or fools in our day. When we're born, it's all unrealized potential. We're in this world full of uh, uh, sadness and sorrow and tears and pain, and we've got to be wise. When we die, it's when we step out of this world, not into some soul sleep, into the very, if you're in Christ, if you've trusted him for your salvation, you you literally step right into his presence. Talked about it two weeks ago right into his presence, and now he will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more sickness, no more sadness, no more sorrow, no more pain. And that day, you're home. Like, that's where this sliver of eternity, is, it's about navigating in such a way you are there for all of eternity, and there's a name left behind that still glorifies God long after you're here. When you go, if you go before me, when I go, we're going to gather, there's going to be a celebration service. If you're a Christ follower, we'll celebrate a life well lived. We'll celebrate a name that glorifies God, and we'll celebrate that you're home. You're home. We still got to struggle. You're home. We long to see you again one day in his presence when we get to the end of our struggle. You're home. Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. So you're saying, so Kenan, are you telling me you want to die? I'll be honest, no. I really don't want to die. It's probably because I'm not as mature as the Apostle Paul and my persecutions aren't near as um, uh, deep and felt and and, uh, incisive as his were. But I'll tell you this. I'll tell you what I do want to be true. Uh, I want to live these days in light of that day. I, I, I long to live because I want more time with my boys than, frankly, my father had with me. I still want to snow ski with them. We've never snow skied. I want to stand on top of a mountain and survey with them God's creation before we put our lives on the line and slide down on sticks. I want to do that. I want to learn to fly fish so I can teach them to fly fish so we can be out there in nature like a river runs through it. I want to do it. Listen, I want, I want to see them go through their childhood into young men and begin to struggle with the stuff that, that uh, puberty brings and, and girls bring. And I want to be able to talk to them about those things. And I want to help them find and cherish and understand what it is to find a wife who is a good thing, a wife like their mama. I want to see who they're going to marry. How long I pray for that day constantly. I can't wait to see who it is that they would take, Lord willing, as their wife. And I long to see children. I would love to have grandchildren. I want to have the ones that I can feed ice cream every night and never have to discipline. I'll see how they like it. Make their lives miserable for a little bit. Listen, I long for those days. I long to, to be a granddaddy who can uh, take my grandchildren up on barns to watch sunsets. I want to play battleship. I want to I wanna be the one eating the half of grapefruit and grape nuts after I cook them eggs and bacon. I want to have the long conversations where I can impart wisdom. And I want to see the, the, the young men God has given me by his grace as spiritual sons. I want to see them raised to the full maturity in Christ. I want to see their ministry go forth generationally through their own children and grandchildren to the ends of the earth. I want to see this beautiful little church family God's given us at Harvest come to maturity in the grace of the gospel. I want to see us realize our core values. I want to see diversity in this place. I want to see church plants that are gospel-centered out of this place. I want to raise up the next generation of leaders to pastor this church and every church we plant. I want to live not for the external, 
I want to live for those things that are weighty, that bring glory to God. And I want to live in such a way that when I cross my finish line, and I don't know what it is, I've got to trust God with that just like you do, but when I cross that line, I want to live in such a way that the day of death will be far sweeter than the day of birth. That's how we're meant to live. Solomon pulls us up close. He says, do you see it? Don't miss life. Don't leave it as unrealized potential. The day of death is indeed better than the day of birth if your life is well lived. And he goes to verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Um, I think this is how, part and parcel, how you live a life wisely. If you give me the option of going to a really good party or a really sober funeral, I'm likely to choose the party every time. Why is that? Well, I love to have fun. I love to eat really good food and, and um, uh, share a really good time. I love to dance. If there's going to be dancing at this party, you've got me. I, lo- I love a party. I love to sit around with my buddies and, and, and tell stories with a lot of exaggerated details and, and laugh until we heard and, and the next day keep laughing about what happened. Like, I love that. But Solomon says, hey, it's better, it's better if you will be in the house of mourning. Now, what happens when you go to a funeral? thought about this, it's, it's um, boy, I think everybody that's ever been to a funeral will understand my experience, I bet it's yours. When I go to a funeral, we're having a time where we're uh, talking about, hopefully celebrating the, the life of a deceased person, and without fail, at some point, there's a morphine that goes on where I start, I go from thinking about their life to thinking about my life. And at a funeral, I inevitably ask all the deep questions about what am I doing here, what's life all about, oh my gosh, this life is going fast, I'm going to be that guy before we know it, and they're going to be talking about me, and what are they going to say? That always happens. That doesn't happen at parties. That happens in the house of mourning. If you've ever ridden with me to a funeral, I can guarantee you on the way back, I have some of the best and deepest, most authentic and important talks of my life on the way home from funerals. Because something just happens in that moment where you really have perspective so that you don't live life like a fool. We'd be wise to be in the house of mourning regularly enough that we don't lose perspective. Solomon says it's good to be at a party, better to be in the house of mourning, so you live wisely on this earth. Can I just tell you, next time you get invited to a funeral, don't think of a reason why you can't go. Find a way to get there. We need to spend time in the house of mourning so that we live out our days wisely. And he says right here, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness, the face, by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. So, so he's continuing on. Sorrow better than laughter. Really, I thought laughter is good for the soul. It is. It is. Um, uh, you, we need to laugh. But here's the thing about sorrow. You don't have to um, look for sorrow. Sorrow will find you should you live long enough. Amen? Gosh, still only like 10 amens. I don't understand it. In the first service, there was like six, so I guess you guys are a little bit more spiritually mature. But right, I mean, in this life, under the sun, a sin-stained world, we are going to have sadness and sickness and pain and tragedy and grief and sorrow. Amen? All right. You don't have to look for it, but here's what will happen. When sorrow finds you, when it comes on you, and by the way, God's sovereign over your sorrow, whatever your deepest, whatever's the hardest thing that's ever happened, he's sovereign over it. And, and, uh, and I don't want to even st- uh, strip him of the uh, reality of giving you sorrow. It's a gift. Here's what sorrow will do. Sorrow will press you into doing something, into going somewhere. You've got to do something with your sorrow, lest it suffocate you. You've got to do something. 
And so you're going to do one of two things. And by the way, here's how I know it's a gift. For by sadness of face, through that sorrow that makes you sad, the heart is made glad. There's an opportunity for joy and for gladness that only comes through sorrow. So when God brings sorrow, you've got to be able to say, okay, this stinks. I don't like this. My face is sad. This hurts. But there's an opportunity here that God has given me. One of my uh, great mentors always tells me in my most difficult seasons, he says, hey, when has God taught you the most? On the peaks or in the valleys? Easy. Valleys. That's where the grass grows, in the valleys. He says, then don't forget to count this a blessing. Don't forget, just that quick change of perspective. Don't forget that this is a season that God's given you. Sorrow's going to drive you somewhere. Where it drives you will determine the outtake it has on your life, the ramification it has on your life. Look at verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. Mirth means enjoyment. So sorrow makes you go somewhere. And for the wise, it makes him go to the house of mourning. It makes him go to God and be honest about what's going on in your heart. It makes you go to God and say, Why? Makes you go to God and say, this hurts. God, I am hurting, I'm in pain, I am sad, I am sick, I am afraid. I'm full of anxiety, I've got worry, I don't know how to deal with it. It makes you go somewhere and the wise go to God. The wise go to good friends who love them and love God and they say, hey, I'm hurting, I'm sad, I've got sorrow, will you pray for me? Now, by the way, the Bible is replete with promises for the one who is sorrowful, that will take his sorrow to the Lord. It doesn't say God will fix all your problems the way you want him to, when you want him to. It's not, a, uh, it's not like God's not some genie, we, we you know, make a wish and he fixes everything. No, here's what he says, if you go to him, some of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 34, 18 says he is, God is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. That's a promise. Uh, it says in uh, Psalm 51, 17, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. Like if you are brokenhearted, here's the beautiful thing. God loves the brokenhearted. He's near to them. If you pull in close to God, if you take your sorrow to God, he will bring you his presence. And here's the best thing I can tell you that's a promise in scripture. His presence will sustain you. Philippians 4 says he'll give you a peace that passes your understanding in suffering. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, sorry, says my grace is sufficient for your need. It's in your weakness that you'll experience my power. If you take your sorrow to the house of mourning, you're met with the ministering presence of God, and he brings healing and growth, character forms, maturity, your name glorifies his name. Now the wise man will do it. The wise man will take his medicine. He's willing to hurt so God can grow him and conform him into the image of Christ. What does the fool do? Because sorrow drives the fool somewhere too. It says the fool goes to the house of mirth. This is a house of amusement. The fool will still, he's got to do something, sorrow's present. What the fool wants to do is forget about it. The fool wants to, uh, to do something that uh, medicates the pain. The fool wants to manage the sorrow instead of deal with it in a way that brings healing. And so the fool goes to a strip club. The fool goes to a bar. The fool goes to a golf course. The fool goes to a casino. The, go, go, the, the fool goes somewhere that, uh, that the flesh has an appetite for so that the flesh heals happy so he can manage his pain with the sorrow he's really dealing with. And the longer the fool does that, the more fool becomes a slave to that which God's given him a gift to bring healing in the ministering presence of God. That's what the fool does. And by the way, I used some examples that were pretty reckless. But let me, let me make sure I broaden the application to fit all of us. Uh, the fool may uh, numb the pain by uh, drowning himself with sports. 
watching sports, playing sports. If you're playing softball five nights a week, there's a problem. I, the fool will, um, the fool might, uh, uh, maybe you just like to eat a lot of ice cream. It drowns out my sorrows. I love ice cream. Maybe it's exercise. Maybe it's, you know what, let's chisel out those abs again. I don't want to think about what's going on. Listen, it's not to say you're doing something that's unbelievably reckless, foolish, or sinful. You can take that which is meant for good and still make an idol out of it. It can still be the crutch you use so you don't have to feel your sorrow and take it to the Lord. The wise man goes to the house of mourning. The fool goes to the house of mirth. Understand, God gives you the sorrow for his glory. And what did it say back in verse 3? That your heart be made glad. It's for your joy. It's for your maturity. But you've got to be willing to take your sorrow to him. Verse 5 says, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. So the idea here is we're all going to deal with this. The weightiness, the sorrow, the difficulty of life. It's, you better have a friend or two that can rebuke you. Can I just, again, let that sink in for a minute? How many of you have a friend that can speak the truth and love you in a corrective manner, in a rebuking manner? Again, again, most of us, uh, most of us like to have uh, friends who have fun with us. But there's this sacred space that we don't let many people in because we'd have to show them all the cards, we'd have to show them what's wrong, and they'd have to have permission to speak into our life, and we'd have to have ears to hear it when they do, or we'll just um, ruin friendships. How many of you have really allowed somebody into that space. Solomon says it's better to be able to have the rebuke of a friend than, than merely fools who will make merry with you as you make a mess of your life. The idea is you'd rather have one godly friend than a bunch of friendly fools. How many godly friends do you have? And can I say this, a godly friend is a gift. They may not be even right. Uh, they may not understand the full context when they speak into your life. But if you've got a friend who's willing to say, I'm concerned about you. I see some things in your life that look really unhealthy. Can I share my fear? Listen, my first instinct when that happens, my wife is one of those friends and I've got a few others. And when, when they do that thing to me, my first instinct is almost always not to say thank you. Again, I'm just going to be honest about my immaturity. I normally will defend what they are pointing out. I'll defend why I'm the way I am or what's going on. i just defend it. Then I'll move from defense to justifying. And if only you don't understand the context, let me tell you why this is actually just fine. And then I'll uh, turn to point a finger. And what about what I see in your life going on? And, and then I'm accusing. And finally I have to get away and God has to deal with me with what they've said. And eventually in his faithfulness, he chastens me to repentance. And I come to the point of going, wow, I just took a gift and I stomped on it. And there was truth in that gift. And that gift was for my good. For and then I have to go back and now I have to apologize and I have to repent. And finally we get to growth. And that's just a cycle that I see in myself, and, and hopefully it's going from, uh, hopefully I'm lessening the length of that cycle to receiving the gift. But many of us surround ourselves with those who will laugh with us, who will help us to justify our sin as we go to the house of mirth, but will not, cannot be with us in the house of mourning because we haven't allowed them into that space. Do you have a friend or two that will rebuke you when you're in sin? And then he says here in six, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. The crackling of the twigs is because they're on fire under the pot that's burning. And so, so the smoke goes up and then quickly they are extinguished. And he says that crackling of the twigs is like the laughter of the fool. The idea is the fool um, will not tell the truth when he's on fire. 
The fool will laugh it off. The fool will giggle about what's not funny at all. He'll pretend everything's okay when it's not until his life has gone up in smoke. You see that? Um, Every one of us will have seasons in life where there's smoke, where there's some crackling going on. And every one of us has this human propensity where it's embarrassing to tell anybody what's happening, feel shameful to tell anybody what I'm really feeling or what I'm going through. And so the easiest thing to do is just kind of put on a smile, go to the house of mirth, try to act like it's okay. Can I tell you how many marriages would have been saved if husband or wife, when the smoke was going up, had said, hey, we need some help, instead of just acted like everything was okay when it wasn't okay? Can you tell me how many young people that I talk to that are in sexual addiction, men and women, sexual addiction, addicted to pornography because they wouldn't tell the truth when they were smoked. They acted like okay until they become a slave to their sin. The church is meant to be a place where we can tell the truth because if there's any place where there's people that ought to understand what it is to be a sinner in need that has no righteousness of your own, that is purely hoping in Christ because we realize there's nothing to hope of in and of ourselves, where we can tell the truth and people not run away from us or look down on us in judgment but move towards us, it's the church. That's what the church is meant to be. Isn't that who Christ was? You think about the life of Christ, who did he hang out with? He hung out with those who were really messed up and knew it. It did. Everybody, we're all messed up. But he hung out with the ones who told the truth about it. And man, he would stop trafficking. He'd quit ministering to the masses to minister to the one gal who tugged on his coat who said, I'm hurting. Boy, he'll go to the ends of the earth to find you and minister. And we're his body. That's an embodiment of how we're supposed to love and minister to one another. Jesus never felt real at home among the religious crowd who merely pretended everything was okay when it wasn't. That never moved his heart. Sometimes I think Jesus would be uncomfortable in his own church. You know what our reputation is to the the world, right? And I don't mean merely harvest. I mean the church of Jesus Christ in today's culture. You know what the reputation is. The people out out these windows and around this building and the neighborhoods, they generally think of the people who come in here, they generally think of us as hypocrites. And the reason they do is they say those people will act like everything's okay when it's not. We know they're human. We know there's sorrow and sadness and sin and suffering. We know there's smoke in their lives too. They just won't tell the truth about Why would I wanna go be a part of a body who says everything's okay when it's not? That's hypocrisy. By the way, when they say that, I think they're in agreement with Jesus. That's hypocrisy. The church is not meant to be a place of hypocrisy. It's meant to be a place of healing. It's meant to be a a house of mourning where we can go and share the truth of what's happening to the Lord and to others. And a ministering community called the body of Christ comes into our life and that which is sorrowful turns to gladness as we experience hope and healing and renewal That's what's meant to happen here. That's why you can't merely be involved at a Sunday morning level. That's why we gotta get you somewhere in a smaller group community where you can be really known and loved and shepherded and discipled. You gotta be, listen, the reason the world is turned away from church is because they see us as a worshiping community but not an honest community. They see a bunch of people who will gather and raise their hands and worship but won't tell the truth about their lives. Solomon says, if that's true of you, you're a fool. The smoke goes up and you're pretending. And if we are pretending, then we have nothing to offer a world in need. We cannot export what we do not possess. 
And we gotta be willing to tell the truth about what's happening in our lives so that we can be a ministering body to those around us here and out there. Can I tell you when churchianity becomes Christianity? Churchianity becomes Christianity when Christians begin to tell the truth about their sin, their struggle, their sadness, and their sorrow. And we get real transparent. And we don't pretend, we don't act like everything's okay that's not okay. And churchianity becomes Christianity when that worshiping community becomes a ministering community. Churchianity becomes Christianity when people can share with you the deepest, darkest things going on in their life and you don't look at them in judgment, you move towards them as the tangible love of Christ. Churchianity becomes Christianity when thirsty people can come in here and find drink. When hungry people can come in here and find food that nourishes. When tired and weary people can come in here and find rest for their soul. Now that's church. I think we stop there. I think we acknowledge there's a great danger in the moment of history that we're in at Harvest. For the last couple years, we've experienced a lot of growth. There's a lot more people in here than there used to be. And with the blessing of growth becomes, uh, comes a danger. There, there's a lot more opportunity for you to be a part of this without really being a part of it. There's just a lot more chance for you to kind of slip in and harvest is my church and I go to church there, but nobody really knows you. And let me just say, from, from, from a granddad who knows, who's been there, he's saying, listen, the wise men will find a community to say to, I'm on fire. You won't hide. You won't merely manage your pain. You won't merely pretend. You tell the truth. My exhortation, my encouragement, and my invitation is that you find a place, if this is going to be your church, you find a place outside of this Sunday morning gathering where you're with a few. you got some friends that know what's going on, that can see into your life, that you invite to that sacred space, that can rebuke you. You trust them with what's sacred. Test the body of Christ. Let it move towards you in love. Let sorrow become gladness. But you got to find a place here at Harvest, where you're really known. Where you can say, help. I need some help. And people move towards you with the love of Christ. Hey, my, my email address, if you don't know it, it's on the website, kenan at harvestmemphis.org. Josiah, who is over all of our small groups, josiah at harvestmemphis.org. In just a moment, we're gonna have a time of, of uh, prayer as a response time. Um, during that time, you can ask an elder that you go up to, say, hey, I need some help. Or you can email me or Josiah. This is what we exist for. We're the body of Christ. We worship, yes, but we also minister to people in need like me and like you. And so I want to make sure that we don't leave this time without, and I, I got to move away from just church speak into real talk. And we got to have a time where some folks can say, hey, I need some help. Hey, I need some help. Hey, I don't really feel like I'm known here. And we've got to help you into a place where God takes the gift of sorrow and he turns it into gladness in your life. And the maturity grows. And your name, which represents his name, gets weighty 
to the point it's gold. Okay, so I'd like our uh, ministry team to go ahead and come to the front and the back at all the tables. I'm going to ask Tony to come out and uh, just play for us. What I'd like to do, and um, uh, what I'd like to do before we take communion is have a few moments where you can respond. In fact, I'd like everyone just to stand to their feet. We're going to kind of sing a response song together uh, or meditate on what's being sung. And what I'd like you to do is just use this as a time. But use this as a time where uh, you can go to an elder and say, hey, will you pray for me? There's smoke. Maybe it's not a fire yet. Maybe it's full-blown flames in your life. But just to say, hey, I need to be known. I need some help. Will you pray for me? Will you help me get connected with some folks who can walk with me? And we want to have a few moments where we act as a ministering body this morning, and then we'll conclude our service in communion.